Welcome to Season 2 of This Is Me. My name is Siobhan. In Season 1, we met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we not only have a new logo, but we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you would like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. In this episode, we hear Craig's story. My name is Craig. I'm 47. I was married early divorced early. My kids were abused in every way possible. I wanted to kill the stepfather and I ended up in jail. There's some stains on your photo. They all cracks on your rusty frame. So Craig, how old were you when you first got married? Uh, I was 18. So That's pretty young. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Were you in love? I thought I was. It's one of those things I met her when I was 13, started doing the wrong thing when I was 13 and stayed with her for that kind of reason, really. So So you had children quite young? Yeah, so I was 17 and she was pregnant. So, yeah, and that's why we got married. And how many children did you have with this lady? Uh, Two. How was your marriage? Uh, I was young. So, I, I mean, my dad worked really hard. I had three jobs. So when I wasn't at work, I was with my mates. And so that really, I guess I looked at marriage the wrong way. I was young and not sure what to do. So it's not totally her fault that I came home one day and the house was empty and kids gone. So, Wow. Do you remember mm. that moment? Yeah, it was, it was horrible. And it still hurts now to think that you, when you walk in a house and there's little just bits of rubbish left on the floor and that's it. That's nothing left. There's no, no life left in the house. How old were your children when she left with them both? My youngest was around eight months old and so my eldest would have been they're 18 months apart so yeah that's young Mm, yeah really young Mm. so what do you do when you come home to an empty house like that the first thing I did was um call my parents and spoke to my mum and and she was kind of not surprised and in some ways a little bit happy about it because she didn't really like her anyway so (laughs) it's like it's like oh okay that's not the response I was thinking of but you know yeah did you try and find them? Yeah, I went on a journey, you know, trying to find where they were. I mean, she was very, um, the whole family's a little bit bit like that, very manipulative and, and does things their own way. And, and they still to this day, they're very hard to track down and, and find what's happening in their lives. But I, I did try to find them, but she just would move between states and it just made it very difficult to find where they were at. So how often did you see your children as they were growing up then? I didn't see them for... Uh, three years three or four years can you contact the authorities and and say my wife has taken off of my children no it's just that was the way it was we tried and and to be honest in that first few years it was just kind of like I tried and tried and tried in the point where I just gave up Mm. um, for about 18 months I brought a uh, little camper van and started traveling around Australia I thought I'll just go and do find a little bit of Australia and spend my time doing something I want to do and I had no idea where they were or what they were doing she just made that pretty much impossible. So you eventually did find them? Yeah, yeah. I'm travelling around, I ended up in Port Macquarie, started working in a nightclub and I met my now wife, Jodie, 
And um, the first thing I said to her is, I've got kids and I want to find where they are. And that was a journey that we started pretty much straight away. Can you take me through how you found them? Employed a solicitor and they went through Centrelink or whatever, CES or what it was back then. And uh, they end up getting papers served on her through that way because there was no other way of finding out where she was. Uh, they were able to serve papers through there and then get her into family court in Victoria. That's the route we went, which meant I had to travel from Port Macquarie to Victoria for every family court session, which is a big, big thing to do. How long mm. is the trip? Uh, back then, it was about 15 hours in the car. Oh, so my yeah. gosh. Wow. <laughs> that is a big trip. Yeah, there was no freeway, really, like there is now. So what happened? So you went to court, and what was the end result of that? Yeah, after, we, uh, I think it was three court appearances, and then we finally got uh, supervised access, which we did. And then it moved on to a weekend visit, which was really cool. So I got to spend a weekend with my boys, um, which I hadn't spent any time alone with them since, you know, they were sort of 18 months. And So, yeah, sorry, what old. age were they when you first got the visits with them? So they would have been five, six, yeah. Yep. Did they know that you existed? No, they called me Craig, so they didn't know who I was. So we sort of went through a whole process of, you know, uh, re-establishing relationship and, and nearly didn't know who I was. So, yeah, which is tough but they kind of you know they'd been through a lot as kids as well so I learned that they'd been abused in every way possible by their stepdad and it was you know they'd been there was no normality in their life so for them to someone new to come into their life it was like oh this is just another crazy day in my life. So was their stepfather still with their mother? Yeah. How do you know that they were abused? Department of Human Services had told us everything that had happened um, over the period of time. And the crazy thing was that they were still in that house, even though all these things had happened to the kids. They'd taken them out of the home because they'd been found sleeping in urine-dripping beds, you know, that much because they wet the beds. Or, so they'd just leave them laying in the beds. But they would take them out of those homes, put them back in the house, put them in foster care, bring them back. And uh, I asked the same question. They said, it's all about re-establishing families. It was just crazy. It was nothing about child safety. It was a very, very frustrating situation. Was your ex-wife, were you divorced by this stage? Yeah, yeah. Was she involved in drugs or something? Yeah, so she had left me for her stepbrother. But he was a heroin addict. Yeah. How does a father feel mm. when he's reunited with his boys yeah. and to know that they're going back to abuse of mm. every kind? Yeah. It was really tough because I had to drive 15 hours back home, mm. leaving, leaving him in a situation, the boys in a situation that was, was really, really, really bad. But it was my end goal was to go through these steps in the hope of maybe getting full custody of the boys. So it's just following everything to the letter of the law and, and making sure I was doing the right thing and, and just to get to that point where I could hopefully get custody of them and out of that situation. So. Could you see that they had been abused when you would have them in your care? Was there any evidence of abuse? Yeah, my eldest boy, his eyes were facing different directions because he'd been beaten so much. He was sort of slow for his age and certain things. You could just tell that there was something different about him. In the head? Yeah, then. yeah, he'd been beaten pretty hard. His, his, these muscles around his eyes had shifted and stretched. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Mm, very hard to take. Were they sexually abused? My oldest boy was, yeah. How and do you know? After that weekend I spent with them, my eldest boy had a doctor's appointment because he had 
some sort of irritation around his bum, I guess. So um, he went to the doctors, and uh, when the doctor was, was trying to find out what was happening down there, he said to the doctor that my daddy touches me there. Um, and so the, my ex-wife and the stepdad um, used that as a, as a tool then to stop me seeing my kids and they made a complaint saying that I, was, I abused him on that weekend. Oh. Um, when in fact the kids were calling me Craig, I hadn't seen him forever. It was just, there was, so I had to go through this whole process of like, I didn't do that and then got interviewed by police. You know, is this, did this happen? Did this not happen? Um, and then the police could see what was happening right along. They did the interviews, and then after the interview, the police officer said, look, mate, we know that you didn't do it, but we had to follow this process. He apologised for the interview. Um, and he said, look, you know, the stepdad will be charged with, you know, with abusing your, your boy. So it was, yeah, that, and the officer knew that that was hard to say to me, and obviously it was, I was physically upset about it. So, so their mum knew that this was happening? yeah. Yeah, it's incomprehensible. She has three other kids to him as well, and they've all been through the same circumstances. So, so after mm. this time through the courts, mm. police clearing your own name yeah, as yeah. well, yeah. did the children still stay with their mother? Uh, my youngest was off in foster care and with a good family, and um, uh, the other four were with the mother still so even through that but then it got to the point where this was all coming out and I'd, I'd moved obviously I was in Port Macquarie so I had some contacts up there with one of the bikey clubs that I'd been sort of doing some stuff with in the clubhouse around music and different things and it got to that point where it, just, it was just um, it was all too much you know to take um, when this come out that he was going to be charged and I thought that was too easy for him so I spoke to those guys, I said, look, mate, you need... I explained to them what had happened, and they said, you know, do you want us to take care of him? I said, well, here's the address. Happy for you to take care of him. So that was the process I was going down mentally. I wanted him dead, and that was the offer. And I said, just, yeah, go and do it. So I handed the address over, happy as Larry. I thought, in my mind, I just wanted him dead. I'd, yeah. I was done. But before that had happened, he knew he was going to get charged and he ended up committing suicide in the family home. Who found him? Oh, the kids. Yeah, so, yeah, that was his plan. How did he do it? Uh, Hanging himself, so, yeah. And so, how Mm. old were the boys when they found their stepfather that way? Yeah, six. There was other kids in the house, which, yeah, so then four or five. You mentioned... The bikies. Mm. How did you get an association in that scene? After everything had happened uh, where we were living, I was travelling around, ended up in Port Macquarie and started working in a nightclub. Some of the guys were coming in and out of the nightclub, so I got to speak, just, I guess, forming friendships with some of the guys. And um, I was able to run, help them with some of their music in, a, in their clubhouse and run events and things like that for them. Yeah, I guess it was a bit of a belonging too. It was good to be part of something. They were good guys, so, yeah. So you're working in a bar, yeah. associating with bikies who were good people. Yeah. Then what happened? Um, I wasn't dealing with the whole situation of what happened with my kids. Um, we'd got access to my eldest boy. Once um, the suicide happened, my ex-wife said she couldn't cope with the kids. So she gave the three other younger kids that she'd had with the stepdad away to 
Department of Human Services in Victoria, but then my eldest boy was, um, I was contacted by them saying, did you want to take him because she wants nothing to do with him now? Where was the younger boy? So he was in foster care. So and you, he, would, he, he didn't stayed really there? Wanna, yeah, yeah, he didn't really want to come. He didn't really know me to that point. You know, we didn't had formed a relationship where me and my eldest boy, he was probably old enough to kind of recollect who I was. And so he came up, we um, got surgery on his eye to repair his eye, to bring it back straight again. And we got him some counselling and, and all these sorts of things. But we'd had, me and Jodie had a daughter by that point. And um, because of what he'd been through with the sexual abuse, um, there were some signs that he was showing of just being inappropriate looking. Um, no touching, but it was just, you could, like Jodie felt that he was staring at her breasts, like different things that was mm. just picking up that wasn't quite right. And so that sort of rung alarm bells for her to the point where she said, you know, it's, it's really, we've got to make a choice here. I don't really want Maddie to go through anything that these kids have been yeah. through. And how, so she sort of gave me an ultimatum. Sorry, how old was Maddie at that time? 80 months, two years. So, yeah, oh, 80 months old, yeah, maybe. Very young. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. At the point when I had to make a decision where he was going to go, he went. We, we, I decided that he would go to the maternal grandmothers in Queensland um, just because that was kind of the, the better option at that point in time. I knew where she was. She'd been there for a long time. was going to be able to locate him if something had happened, but that didn't last either. He'd been through so much already. You know, he should have shoved from pillar to post, and he got up there and just started smashing windows and, out, you know, I guess, slashing out because he'd felt unloved or mm. not wanted. That didn't last, so we brought him back down to the Hunter Valley where um, he stayed with my um, dad, mum and dad, for a bit. But that didn't last as well. He kept running away, and um, dad was ex-police, and um, but he still couldn't control him. He was just you know, uncontrollable. At this point, he was nearly eight and just strong as an ox. Did and, you say um, eight? Yeah. And that all just took a toll on me, and I did, wasn't coping with any of those anything that's happening. We ended up putting him in uh, a mental ward state in a, in a hospital and he became a ward of the state in New South Wales, so, which is probably the best thing for him. He's come through that system really, really well. He got looked after by a great um, youth service in Newcastle called the Lambie Youth Services. They took him in and um, he's just doing amazing now. But at the time, I was, did cope with any of that and... One night someone just said, you know, you need to just calm down, mate. You know, you're just bashing people for no reason. And someone said, you know, offer me half an ecstasy tablet. So I know the worst thing I did, I took it. So, and then I just forgot about everything that was happening. An hour later, I said, give me the other half. And then that just spiralled out of control. So before I knew it, I was taking 13 ecstasy tablets a day. I don't know how many grams of speed on top of that. You know, it's just a wild time. So, yeah, we're weird. It just it escalated so quick. How long did you take the drugs for? Um, from start to finish was about six months, but obviously taking those sorts of drugs is not cheap. So I thought it was a good idea to maybe sell one or two on the side to try and you know pay my uh, pay for my habit. But one of the, about the fifth person I sold to was an undercover police officer. That was the start of the surveillance on our crew. So. So was your wife, Jodie, you were married now by this point, you had Maddie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, mm. was she doing it too? No, she wasn't doing, she's never done any drugs at all. The, did she yeah. know you were doing it? She did, probably after a couple of months. And again, I was able to say we really wanted a house. So I was like, oh, this is a good thing, you know, it's going to we'll put some money away and 
it's just manipulation really as there's look back at it's it's very very sad you know and the person I've become is not the person I've grown up as and it's you know there's no excuse for it really it's just horrible but uh, yeah my, I was able to convince her that this was a great idea and I don't know how yeah. so you were under surveillance for how long about six months yeah and then so they uh they had us under surveillance even the trips to Sydney so we were doing 200 odd k's an hour down the freeway in WRXs and then they were trying to stay in front of us and one behind us they said it afterwards the police told us that it was one of the craziest things that they'd ever done and so they ordered this big shipment about 3,000 tablets speeds what sort of money are you talking what would you make from that that was about $48,000 that that deal we were doing so yeah I traveled to Kempsey from Port Macquarie to Kempsey with all this in the car got into this this uh Jimmy's name was got into his his Audi and um, next thing I heard was uh I thought I was getting um, robbed so I heard all these footsteps running towards the car I thought this is nuts there was three armed people on either side of the car yelling get out of the car get out of the car and and I realized what was happening you know I was was getting arrested so I wasn't getting robbed but it was uh one of the most terrifying moments of my life there's people running out of the park everywhere because people were scared of what was happening and no idea if it's police or if it's a drug deal gone wrong or it, it was pretty terrifying really that was a definitive time in my life though that I probably looking back now I wouldn't change it's sort of you know it's a really shifting point in my life that said this has to change and my, your life has to go in a different direction I went to Cessnock Correctional Centre. It's maximum security. You're in there, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. It was, it was pretty terrifying. So, Two and a bit years in, in jail? Yeah, two and a half years. I got sentenced to four years, nine months. So two and a half years in, two years, four months on parole. Two and a half years, which changed my life and gave me opportunity to sit and reflect. Um, you're locked in your cell, you know, 19 hours a day, um, out for four hours a day, so that was it. And so you don't get that sort of time on the outside to stop and reflect. Uh, I read a lot of Christian books. You know, I guess for me, they really helped my decisions that I was going to make in life when I got out. And Very... before going to jail, that wasn't something you ever did. Did you no, have any no. religious beliefs or did you ever meditate no. outside of jail? No, no. For me, it was like genuinely wanted to live a better life. And um, I had sentences which could have held 25 years they were commercial supply drugs mm. but I went to court and the only people who saw that change in my life were two correctional officers they asked to be subpoenaed as my character references because uh, they could see that there was a genuine change from the person I went in to the person that I, I was going to go out as so, yeah and the judge gave me the least he could give me for district court which is two and a half years so looking back at your time in jail how would you sum it up Oh, definitely a pivotal life change. You know, I went in, one person came out another. Lots of people go in and choose not to change, just do the same thing in there that they're doing on the outside. People often ask me, oh, my son's, you know, involved in drugs or he's doing ice, you know, how can I get him to change? How can I make, you know, him see that there's a different way to do life? Well, you kind of can't. That person has to make that decision. You Mm -hmm. can't make that decision for anyone else. So I went in there and then I made a decision to go, I need to change. I sought out a different way of living my life and for me it, yeah, it's been fantastic. So. How long ago has it been since you were in jail? So I went in in 2002, so I've been, and I did two and a half years in, so it's been a while, you know, I've come out of that, there's been 
been an amazing journey since I've come out as well. And your family's grown? Yeah, so when I had weekend leave, Jonah was conceived, so um, <laughs> probably the first weekend maybe. <laughs> and then, um, so Jonah's, Jonah's 15 now, and then Eli, he's sort of 20 months older, so that's our family now. We had my two older boys, which I still have really good contact with. The eldest boy, I know that you had corrected his eyes and things like yeah. that. How is he now? So he went right through Alambi Care's services. He's, he's with the NDIS now, and now he's 28. And um, he lives self-independent life, so he's been had the same job now for 16 years, 17 years, something like that. Uh, pushes trolleys. So, yeah, he's just, he's just changed position because his shoulder's given him a bit of grief. Now he's been doing it for so long. But he lives an independent life and um, has a carer just one day a week, helps with shopping and different things like that. He still has... They've classed it as high-functioning autism, but it's a coping mechanism, um, some psychologists have said, to cope with everything that he went through as a child. My second oldest, Matthew, he just come out of the army not long ago. He lives a somewhat normal life, but he's also has said it's times which he feels he could wish he could take Anthony's pain or, you know, the stuff that he went through, he wish he could take some of that away from him. But he's also started seeing psychologists and sort of working through that as well you know he's been through a lot and saw a lot when he was a young mm. fellow so I think they still need to follow that journey up they're both in good place though that guilt of you know being a protective dad and not being not being there for them mm. wondering if you could have done things differently and what you could have changed when you were younger um yeah so looking ahead you're a successful businessman. Yeah. With some amazing cafes. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back over your life. Yeah. What would you say? Never give up. Nothing is impossible. Yeah. When you sort of take steps in the right direction, doors open. I'm just so thankful for um, for Jody, and it was her faith that brought us to the point where I made a choice as well. Um, it was her sticking by me that made me think that there is hope and there's still love in the world. Um, because when you feel all that unlove <laughs> you know and you see someone someone your kids go through so much unlove it's easy to give up and think that the world's just horrible and it's a horrible place to live in but it, it isn't you know and there is hope that there is you know this forgiveness for what you've put your family through and there's you know there's hope that there's still um loyalty in the world because it's easy for people to give up on those sorts of things so. but yeah there, there is that for everyone so. there's some stains on your photo TC exist to rescue lives from the devastating effects of alcohol and drug addiction, to restore hope and to rebuild families. Contact them at 180tc.org. That's O N E 80tc.org.